2: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another edition of the podcast. It's Thursday afternoon as we record this, and I am coming to you from uh, Shelter Island, New York, a little bit outside of New York City. Uh, Inside of New York City, of course, this being the time of week that it is, we have with us Ryan Goodman of NYU Law School and co-editor of Just Security. How are you today, Ryan? Pretty well, David. Thanks. And in Washington, D.C., of course, we have with us Dr. Kavita Patel of the Brookings Institution, uh, also practicing physician, formerly of the Obama White House. How are you today, Kavita?
0: Very excited to be here.
2: Well, we're very excited to have you here, and also of the Brookings Institution and of the Washington Post, one of America's most respected uh, columnists, a uh, big uh, hero of ours, and um, a first time
1: um, on this podcast, we have E.J. Dion. How are you today? It is so good to be on this great podcast, and I promised I would say it, that Kavita is one of my heroes, so it's really good <laughs> To see her, but you guys are pretty damn good too, so it's good to be with you. <laughs> we
2: we we are backup singers in Kavita's band.
1: Yeah. That's good. I like that.
2: Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a high honor. It, it, no, it's a high it honor. Is. It, is. We, it is. High honor. Whole, it is. a You should see our our whole slew of TikTok videos we've done together. Yeah, um, there you
0: go.
2: Yeah, ex- exactly. Well, you know, moving from this sort of upbeat subject. One of the reasons that we wanted to have you on, uh, EJ, is that you know you have been chronicling this crisis in democracy um, uh, better than anybody I can I, I can think of. You really framed it well. The most recent uh, piece that I read of yours was: Can Biden's conciliatory slide side survive the GOP's assault on uh, democracy? Uh, in which you talk about this tension between Biden wanting to um, uh, find this uh, sort of unicorn of bipartisanship out there around infrastructure uh, while the Republicans launched this kind of scorched earth attack on voting rights. You ask a
1: question in the title of, 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 of that column. How do you think it's gonna turn out? Let me just take one step back. thank you for your kind words. <clears throat> One of the truly depressing things about what's going on is that in a more rational political circumstance, we would look at what happened in the 2000 election, uh, in the 2020 election rather, and say, this was actually a great triumph of democracy, not just because Trump was defeated, although I obviously think that was a triumph of democracy too, but look at the success we had as a country in boosting turnout during a pandemic. Uh, When this first hit us, and when the primaries uh, were rolling forward, say in March and April, uh, we were looking ahead as a country to holding an election in the most dangerous circumstances possible. And we wondered, would we pull this off? And in an extraordinary display of competence and an openness to change and an openness to reform, we changed the way we held our elections quite radically, with drop boxes, with much more mail voting, with much more early voting. And voters responded, and we had uh, the highest turnout we had had in well over 100 years, because we made it easier for Americans to vote. And that's what is so profoundly depressing about this backlash you're seeing now that Republicans are rationalizing, well, voters don't trust the process. So we are going to pass all these laws to roll back the reforms of 2020 and to make it harder to vote. And of course, the only reason a a minority share of the voters lack confidence in the process is because they believe Donald Trump's lies about the 2020 election. It is a, you know, the definition of a vicious cycle. And so what you have with Biden, I think is a politically shrewd sense that when you look at all the polling voters say, we don't like politicians fighting each other. We'd like them to get things done together. And he ran as that kind of guy. So he feels some real obligation, uh, both to his own promises, but also to this sense in the electorate, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try to make deals on infrastructure. Today, as we speak, he has just made another concession, uh, lowering his overall um, uh, price tag and uh, changing the way his tax proposal would work to try desperately to get Republican support. But the same Joe Biden gave a great speech in Tulsa Um, that really eviscerated the Republicans for what they are doing state by state to wreck democracy and the electoral system. Um, And so I think that Biden is going to keep trying on infrastructure, if only to tell the public and Joe Manchin when the time comes, uh, and he needs his vote, that I tried everything I could. Um, But I think that tough language of Uh, the Tulsa speech really speaks much more to the reality we are in, because if Republicans in Washington are not willing to change the system to overturn these terrible voter measures that have passed now in 14 states, they're really making themselves utterly complicit in this anti-democratic movement. Uh, And so I think Biden is going to have to be very tough when it comes to democracy reform.
2: No question I am left kind of with the image that at the end of the day we we have the Constitution in a pile of ashes because we've gutted democracy to such an extent but the filibuster survives you know it's a it's no it's
1: exactly that. right. It's really a choice. you can help democracy or you can preserve the filibuster, but you can't do both right now.
2: Yeah yeah well that shouldn't be much of a choice.
1: Um, I agree. <laughs> Committed. Committed. As somebody said the other day, uh, there are no single issue voters I've ever met who are single issue voters in favor of the filibuster. You know, there are other kinds of single issue voters, but not on the filibuster. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, my, uh, the,
2: my first wife was a psychotherapist and she used to have a saying, which was that if people feel apparently too strongly about one thing... It's because their reasons are not about that thing. It's you know if and if you say I will never move on the filibuster, even though the filibuster's not doesn't warrant that. It's it's because it's hiding something else. Kavita,
0: so I want to build on that and then ask you, EJ, who I'm so excited. Hopefully, the first of many times we have you uh, given all that you laid out, knowing also that we have a Senate that's in recess. Right, we've seen the Senate now break into recess more times than I would have expected given the level and magnitude of what we're trying to do here. But a promise from Senator Schumer to bring S1 forward kind of simultaneously with the announcement that uh, President Biden made in Tulsa about Vice President Harris getting on like a bus tour of the South to deal with both under uh, undervaccinated. He gave her a double whammy, go get people vaccinated and also go fix voting rights. Now, knowing the White House and the structure of vice presidents in the past what is your opinion EJ or how do you see this marching out what happens in the senate to your point about a mansion cinema kind of uh, deal to be cut somehow I've always thought S1 dies in the senate being a former senate person myself but where what what do you make of now this pivot to uh, Harris who I think actually asked for this issue. So unlike some issues where they get thrust upon a vice president and they're like, here, which Joe Biden had to deal with some of that himself, she asked for this. And uh, many, if you look on Twitter, I think many have argued that they were setting her up to fail and this was just a dog, but she asked for it and she has some confidence. She's not stupid. So play this out a little more. Uh, Talk about the dynamics with does the vice president make a difference? Does it matter to, to have uh, the populism, as your colleague James Homan kind of wrote in one of his op- opinion pieces? What is it that we see in the next months, S1 to the floor? What does this play out as?
1: Well, you know, a uh, somewhat skeptical, perhaps even cynical friend in the democracy movement uh, said, gee, does giving it to Harris mean that Biden thinks it's going to fail? And he wants right. to Harris right. uh, with it. Um, You know, a couple of things on that. One is Harris is now responsible both for this and for the board and for helping solve the immigration problem. (laughs) Dealing with Latin American uh, countries so that getting people vaccinated is the easiest part of this portfolio of three uh, issues that uh, she's got. Um, And as far as I can tell, by the way, the first person who suggested that Harris take this portfolio was Ron Brownstein in The Atlantic, wrote a piece last Mm -hmm. March. So you wonder, did Harris read Brownstein and go to Biden? And that's how we got uh, this uh, outcome. Um, I think it was a partly symbolic move. Uh, you know, If you are Joe Biden and you were vice president and you think being vice president really matters, then it really shows you care about the issue if you're going to ask your vice president mm-hmm. to take this on as a cause. So I think he was under pressure Uh, from the democracy movement to be more outspoken on this issue, the president. And while he's always said the right thing, he's always been for the For the People Act, um, Tulsa was really amping up his position uh, by many degrees. I think that goes with amp. Um, You know, he was really pushing much farther. And so I think this was partly a real thing, which is he wants Harris to use whatever connection she has in the Senate, uh, uh to help push this through uh, and also I think to build a grass help the grassroots movements grow, to support what is a very substantial grassroots movement on behalf of this um, to the extent that it all hangs on mansion and cinema, um, that's going to be, I think a Joe Biden job um, you know it's not cl- I have no sense that Harris has a particularly close relationship with uh, Joe Manchin. Um, She went into his state for something and they didn't tell Manchin she was coming and he was kind of offended by that. I think um, probably, I think Schumer and Biden are going to have to persuade him. And to go back to what you said at the beginning, Schumer has laid out a very ambitious month in the Senate leading up to S1HR1 um, where he is hoping to maybe bring up a gun bill, an LGBTQ rights bill, a gender pay equity bill, And I think he's doing that for two reasons. One, he'd like to pass any of them if he can get 60 votes, but I think he's also trying to build a case over the whole month that if every one of those things gets blocked by a filibuster, Mm -hmm. I think he wants to be able to go to Manchin and say, look, are we gonna govern around here or not? You yourself, Joe Manchin, was very upset when the commission, um, the 1-6 commission got voted down. You know, Manchin said, of course, there are 10 patriotic Republicans who vote for this. Well, there weren't. Uh, and so I think, um, you know, that th- I think there will be a lot of pressure on Manchin and s- a kind of ways to give him some off ramp uh, mm-hmm. from his very strong um, statements. You know, they're not going to blow up the whole filibuster. They will just do it piecemeal. So he can say he's still standing mm-hmm. up for the filibuster, but we have to pass HR 1S1. Um, I know a lot of people, just to close, as you are on the pessimistic side about this getting through, because there are some other senators who have doubts about this or that part of it. I just think what's happened in the Republican states, and particularly this fiasco down in Texas, I mean, a happy fiasco so far because they blocked that awful bill. Um, I think that's raised the stakes here substantially to the point where it's gonna be harder for Democrats to walk away and just say, we cried, because these all these actions threaten democracy itself. It's not a narrow little issue here. This is the whole thing in so many ways.
2: Mm-hmm. Ryan. Um, so I wanted to
3: ask you about the future of the congressional investigation, the House investigation of January 6th, um, in light of the discussion, because you also wrote a piece uh, that was about congressional Democrats should remember this moment, which is when um, McCarthy deep sixes the vote for the commission in the House after they've, the Democratic side has given him everything and after he's basically deputized CatCo to have uh, drafted the bill. And then uh, McCarthy turns against it himself. And I guess the question is, you know, what do you think, what do you expect to happen or what do you think is the right play for Speaker Pelosi in the sense that there's a lot of talk about a select committee, but one of the other alternatives is this idea of giving it right back to the uh, House Homeland Security Committee. Mm-hmm. And the kind of reason that might be a bit of a masterstroke is that you therefore should have CatCo as the senior Republican on the committee. So it's a kind of Thompson-CatCo committee. Also, there's a small handful of Republicans on the Homeland Security Committee who voted for the, for the bill. Um, so that's another reason to be a little bit more optimistic that there could be some bipartisanness around it? Um, so if they issue a final report, it wouldn't just be all Democrats, for example? Do you think that's the, the right play? Do you think it would play out that way? Or do you think it's more complicated than that?
1: I guess I am not, um, I don't have a strong view about which vehicle the House should use. I just have a strong view on the fact that that they should give the Republicans what they asked for. And if they weren't willing to support a genuine bipartisan investigation, then they should have the guts to say, okay, we will do it ourselves through a congressional process, whether it is a select committee or whether it is the Homeland Security Committee. I think the, um, you know, on the one hand, you've got the problem in the House of a lot of committee jealousy on these matters. And I'd like to hope that on something this important, Democrats could put that aside, but uh, as Kavita knows from her own time on the Hill, those are very hard uh, feelings to just put aside, unfortunately, um, that's where the select committee comes in. Uh, but I, I think you made what is an essential, an essential point, which is you really do want Catco and some of the other Republicans who were for the original uh, Commission to be involved here, uh, because what you could have with them are um, real, real Republicans who will make it a bipartisan investigation, and they may challenge the Democrats. But it will, but they will, I think, have at least some interest in getting to the bottom of it because they've shown they were willing uh, to do that. And so, if you could have an agreement on the part of everybody in the House, including all the committee chairs, let's all do it through Homeland Security, because that's the best mix of Republicans, why not? Uh, But I think whatever happens, um, the House should do it. Um, And they should now feel perfectly free to keep doing it right through uh, the 2022 uh, elections. Um, If we could talk about Benghazi for what felt like 300 years, uh, I think we can talk about this for a couple of years. Yeah, well, when, you know, Tom
2: Cotton and some of those folks are talking about something, it seems longer also. Uh, <laughs>
1: uh, uh, I like that dry look on your face when you say stuff like Because
0: that. he means yeah. it. It's dog yeah. ears.
2: <laughs> that's my... I'm thinking of the review that Dorothy Parker did of Catherine Hepburn who said her emotions... Ran the gamut of emotions from A to B. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's my uh, um, uh, that's that's what I got going. But uh, what uh, is that
1: other line? Everything he says a li- is a lie, including the and an it. You know. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But, um, she
2: she of course, told the future in that regard. But in any event, mm-hmm. I, you know, am you know cognizant of the fact that Kavita said that. Uh, uh, you know, typically I get very depressed in the context of these podcasts. Um, and I know that there's been an effort here to resist that, but it's not working. And here's, <laughs> here's, why, here's why it's not working. Um, I think that this Kabuki theater that Schumer is going to enter into at the end of the month is just that. You know, all of anything that he proposes, including S1, is gonna fail. Um, he knows it's gonna fail. He's going through this to deliver a message
1: mm-hmm. to
2: two senators. Uh, we talk a lot about Manchin, who at least had the decency to express his frustration with the January 6th commission decision. Cinema mm-hmm. appeared smiling next to Cornyn saying, oh no, I'm not, touching, I'm not touching the filibuster as if it were a matter of principle. We're then gonna go, and I know that they wanna do this in June for a reason. And that is that sometime in July or potentially a little bit after, we're gonna end up somewhere on this infrastructure bill. Now, in all likelihood, what we're gonna end up with um, is either a very watered down bill that satisfies capital. Eliminates this corporate tax or just goes to the 15% minimum tax is much smaller. And then possibly a larger bill in reconciliation. Or my guess is if Capito is negotiating this thing seriously, that she's going to say, Well, I'll agree to this, but if you backdoor everything else in reconciliation, we're we're, you know, w- w- that's not going to work for us. Um, uh, or, or, or alternatively, Capito, you know, agrees to something and, you know, eight Republicans vote for it and mm-hmm. it doesn't actually get passed by the Republican party and it's Lucy and the football all over again, mm-hmm. take a $2.2 billion, trillion dollar bill, boil it down to one point something and change. And then, you know, after all that exercise end up nowhere. And so I have to say, a lot of this comes down to mansion and cinema. People ask me, is there a deal that can be cut with them? Yeah. You know, we pave the streets of West Virginia with gold, (laughs) we make margaritas free in Arizona or whatever it is that cinema likes. What's, the, you know, is there a deal? Or is it your view that these two are hard cases, their objection is something else that has to do with some other set of interests. And we're gonna go through all these exercises. And at the end of the day, 14 states are gonna pass voter suppression bills, S1 dies, all these other democratic
1: initiatives dies, etc. Well, you know, with all of these corporate sponsorships, why don't we have a bill to rename it the Joe Manchin State of West Virginia, for starters, and then we can uh, take it from there. And your introduction to all this reminded me of one of my favorite lines from the great folk singer Joni Mitchell. She introduced one of her songs by saying, this is a song about disappointment, pause, one of my favorite themes. Uh, <laughs> but I, I wanna just take uh, a couple of things that you said. Um, sort of tear it apart. On the infrastructure bill, I think that Biden is going through this to make it easier for Manchin to be part of the 50 to pass a larger bill. And I think that whether explicitly or implicitly, if Biden agrees to a smaller proposal that can get 10 Republican votes, and I think you're absolutely right to expressed some skepticism about whether um, uh, whether Capito can actually put together 10 Republicans to vote for it. Uh, so they don't need to use reconciliation. Um, but I think the idea is I, I will be able to say, Biden will say that I did this in a bipartisan way. So, Joe, you got to help me on the rest of this. Um, and then they could end up and that would include some taxes. The second bill. Um, and the Republicans who will complain and say, well, we were willing to do go this far, but we can't do that. Um, I think it's at least possible that that two-step could work. Um, and I think they are going either for that or for Biden, and, and they're not going to let this run. I mean, you know, um, Biden and Buttigieg in a comment he made recently, they're all signaling that by the end of this week, I think they're using the 7th as a deadline. They've all said, we're not doing what we did in healthcare, where we negotiated on and on and on and on and no Republican showed up. Uh, We're going to call it quits. And so one way or the other, I think this bipartisan effort is designed to produce a decent outcome, either two bills that add up to something big or eventually just one bill where they pick up the moderate votes. And we'll see if it works. But I think it's not a crazy... Strategy. On the other stuff, I don't know exactly how you will move Mansion and cinema off uh, what they have said so far. And they have been very firm in their public statements. Um, As I suggested earlier, I think the only path is to say, you know, what you might do is have some of these ideas our friend Norm Ornstein has proposed to tighten the filibuster first. so that, you know, it's not that supporters of a bill have to produce 60 votes. It's the people who want to stop debate have to produce 41 votes, Mm -hmm. um, which would have let the uh, commission through, by the way, given people who didn't show up, um, that you have to have more of a talking filibuster as a prelude to saying, lifting the filibuster for certain kinds of bills. And the beauty of HR1 and S1 is that they could say, You know, there's a special provision in the Constitution that says that Congress can um, establish the rules for election to the Congress. And so um, they can go to Manchin and say, let's lift it for S-1. Um, And I don't know what they give him to go along with that, but I think that's the sort of fig leaf where he could say, we're going to keep the filibuster for most stuff. But given what's happening in the States, I've decided I have no choice but to do this. now." Would I bet my family's fortune such as it is on that? Probably not, Uh, but that's because I love my family. But is (laughs) it totally impossible? Uh, I don't think it's impossible that he could move like that. But that you're right. To go back to the bottom line, um, no mansion, no cinema, no action. That's where we're at.
2: Yeah, it's it's very worrisome, Kavita. You were responsible for that whole failed Obama strategy. It is, yeah.
0: Which my, it coming Supreme Court should be handing down a decision on that <laughs> theoretically soon. So yeah, yeah, oh,
2: yeah. So congratulations. But maybe right. a question.
0: <laughs> Can I ask? But I actually am curious because uh, you've. I think you talked about it on the other pod, but um, or I'm thinking you did should have. Uh, you know, I feel I feel like the, uh, putting aside Donald Trump saying he's coming back in August and whatever insanity that was, but I also feel like for me, um, I feel like there's a steady trickle. I was thinking of you, Ryan, this kind of steady faucet drip of insanity that keeps coming out, you know, the Trump administration uh, having kind of reporters' calls, and, and I, I mean, just all the things that I think are slowly being kind of unrolled. Is there a way, but to me, those are clearly related to why S1 is so important. I see that link. So crystal clear. The American public does not. Um, it's playing out in states in varying ways. And so at the end of the day, is it is it our responsibility, people like the four of us, certainly with different platforms, to stitch that together? Because I you know you do it, Ryan, on your blog very well. But, you know, I hate to say it, I don't know how much of like regular America understands it. So I don't I don't know if part of the problem is that I keep hearing about violations of, frankly, you know, reporters, journalists' rights, First Amendment. And I think we're only at the tip of the iceberg. That just is my sense. And, And David, we've talked with folks on this podcast who have alluded to the exact same thing. Why do people not see the connection? What are we missing and how can we do a better job? For anyone, <laughs> I'm just I, and maybe I'm wrong at kind of thinking about I'm, it. I'm way. waiting
1: with bated breath for Ryan. So uh.
3: <laughs>
0: well, Ryan, Ryan, you, I was really thinking of you, kind of second. I was like, oh my god, I'm dying to know what Ryan. And you tweeted, I, I know you tweeted, but I'm, I see it as a connection. Ryan, do you think we need to do a better job? To David's point of A to B, I mean, we, I see this as directly correlated. These acts, this ability to let an administration go unchecked. To have, to have Mitch McConnell, we have not mentioned him. One of the reasons I think S-1 will fail is because Mitch McConnell absolutely will do anything possible not to let it happen and has a way somehow to always get what he wants. I can't believe I'm saying that, but it is true. And I've worked with his office. He knows how to work the Senate quite possibly better than Schumer. So what am I missing, Ryan, anybody, but Ryan. No, I
2: really wanna hear Ryan's response because the question began with Kavita saying, uh, I'm thinking of the slow drip, drip, drip of insanity, which made me think of you, Ryan. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Because I was like, um, what would Ryan say about this? I was dying to know.
3: (laughs) It's not a fast drip, I guess. I've always wondered if more would be coming out about the Trump administration, just because the Biden administration is inheriting so much of that information. And I guess I can at least point to one institution that we should be focusing more on, which is the Justice Department. And this past week has focused on a little bit more. Um, Greg Sargent was writing about it. And EJ, you had referred very favorably to to Greg's uh, column on that as well. And I'm very worried about the current direction of the Garland Justice Department um, with respect to accountability issues, with respect to um, maintaining legal positions that were taken somewhat outlandish legal positions um, by the Trump administration. You know, one of the things about the reporters, just because you mentioned that, when the first revelation came out about the Trump administration having spied on and collected uh, reporters' phone records, that came with a current Justice Department spokesperson on the record statement mm-hmm. defending it. Um, so I think that's one uh, piece whereby people in the conversation should also be directing some of this as is now happening towards the Justice Department, what's happening inside that Justice Department, because of the trade-offs that it seems like Garland is right now making, free of a certain level of public scrutiny. So I think that's at least one way in that those of us in that conversation uh, could be um, addressing that in a more intense way. Um, so I do think that's, at least, at least that's one lever, and it's an important lever, it's, my goodness, it's the Justice Department. If that were to open up in a different way our vision of accountability in this country would be
2: uh, very different what
0: do you Ryan, think Ryan i think people need to understand the institution more i think when you when i when we talk about merrick garland and the doj i'm not sure the american it's we've had such a luxury for so long of having kind of to not worry about accountability or to not worry about our democracy being threatened even though it was being chipped away over the decades uh, or continue to be chipped away I mean, I feel like this is now we've got to figure out how to get people to realize what's at stake. I mean, that's what I think. I think we're failing, not we personally, maybe we personally, we're failing at doing that because people are just not incredulous about it. They don't understand. That's what I, I think they just don't understand why this is such a threat.
1: Could I say a couple of quick things? Uh, of course. I, number one, um, I am on the record as a big Garland fan and I think he was chosen in part to send a very important signal that this Justice Department will not be like the previous Justice Department. We will not politicize things. And as I noted when I referred to Greg Sargent's piece is I have enormous sympathy for that overall view that it is very important that the Justice Department both not be politicized and not look like it's being politicized. Both the the, the actual fact and the appearance are both important. So I utterly get their reluctance to jump into this and just willy-nilly release stuff from the Trump years and look like they are just settling scores and so on. Um, but on, I, and, and then I would treat the two things that Greg wrote about, the two issues he raised differently, I don't see any problem with releasing Trump's taxes to Congress, because that's what the law says. Uh, and I don't know about you. I'm not a lawyer. You are, Ryan. But I think it's a fairly open and shut legal case that Congress has a right to those tax returns. And I don't think it would be doing anything political. It would just be reading law, as I believe it is written, to turn those over to Congress. The bar memos I would like them released because I think it's really important that we know uh, what he did for accountability purposes. But I do get at least an institutional objection uh, to the notion of you know, where does this stop? What would happen? What precedent would they set if the Republicans take over the, one of the houses of Congress and they start rummaging around in ways that are utterly illegitimate? for internal memos of this and that. So while I would release them myself and wish they were released, I get that objection much more than I get the objection to the taxes. Does that make any sense to you, Ryan? I'm curious, this is your area. <laughs> it, it
3: does, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I just, uh, I think it's a closer call on the uh, bar memo um, in the sense that or it's an easier call. Let me put it that way. Like they could release the memo, and I don't think it necessarily has presidential value for other information that they'd want to keep private. And the judge in that particular case is is angry at the Justice Department's yeah. just proffered justifications for it. So it just seems as though, based on some of the news reporting, that Garland is trying to handle these difficult trade-offs, and he is doing this one more in the defense of the uh, line officials who are otherwise on the hook for it. Um, and I and I worry about that versus the enormous public interest in the release of it, especially with the judge who thinks that she has been deliberately misled by the Justice Department in terms of their justifications for keeping it secret. So it's such an unusual setup that for the public interest, I think they could allow this um, more, to, more of the member to come out And they're not really compromising anything except for what they're truly compromising might be the protection of DOJ officials um, who maintain this line in the past. And that, to me, is the wrong. That's what I'm I'm concerned about, that trade-off. And at a minimum, more scrutiny on the Justice Department for these kinds of decisions, I think, might adjust the trade-off differently, is Uh to place more
2: weight on the other side of the scale. Although Ryan is the, the attorney here, I do recall reading uh, the judge's analysis of this. And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, one of the points she was trying to make was that deliberations are protected, but there was no deliberation here. <laughs> and right, right. That, that this actually, that he'd already made up his mind. And since he had already made up his mind, Therefore, this was just a political rationalization, which is something different and not protected. That's right, and then on
3: the face of the memo itself, with the parts that they were trying to hide, was it was more about um, uh, managing the message that he, of the decision he had already taken. Um, and, and that wasn't pre-deliberation in, in, in any sense. So I have this theory in deliberation.
1: in yeah. some ways the Biden administration may Want to um, delegate indirectly uh, a lot of the accountability stuff to others so they are not messing with the previous administration, uh, which means that you've got all of the legal actions against Trump in the various states and localities that are going on. um, And then maybe outside groups will force some of these memos out um, through their own litigation, where the administration won't be doing it, they'll be forced to. By this uh, litigation, it still doesn't explain to me why they just won't follow the law and release the tax returns. Mm-hmm. That's a, I, I just put that in a separate, mm-hmm. I think, easier category than the bar memo. And I end up on balance saying, put it out for the reasons you describe and for accountability purposes. And I think, you know, Democratic administrations have seemed recently reluctant to you know try to hold the previous administration accountable, even when they should be. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of broadly on that line, but I still, something holds me back because I really do not want a democratic administration ever to be seen as politicizing the justice department to the extent that it's possible to avoid that because we saw the extreme danger of that under Trump. Yeah, Although there's a pattern here
2: because the democratic administration is trying to appear judicious, um, uh, and is you know, therefore avoided doing a lot of the things which accountability might've called for, they've been bending over backwards. In the Congress, they've been bending over backwards. Um, the, you know, the, it's the Democrats who give up, it's the Democrats who fight to, um, uh, you know, try to find bipartisanship. I mean, the the, the the minority leader, you know, has come out and said, you know, as he did with Obama, my job is to just stop things happening for the for the President of the United States. The Democrats bend over backwards. And it almost always turns out badly for the Democrats. <laughs> Let me ask you one last question here, uh, because we, we're running out of time, um, uh, EJ, and then maybe, Kavita and Ryan, you, you, you might have a brief response to it as well. Um, another of our friends uh, and a regular, on, a, on our Monday podcast for the past many years, uh, Ed Luce had a column out today in which he talked about essentially a moment of truth coming for the Biden administration. Um, it, it's, a, it's akin to, to, to your issue here. You know, there's, there's the search for bipartisanship, but democracy is also, you know, on the chopping block, and if there is no, you know, if you sacrifice, you know, the all the beautiful children of, of of democratic minds as we intend to do at the end of June here um, uh, in the Senate, and it doesn't produce movement on the filibuster, and you don't get S one, and you do get fourteen states moving forward with voter. Um, suppression laws. Um, Democrat and, and, and then you know we follow on to that new census, et cetera, et cetera. Democrats are going to lose and may never recover. We may never recover from this. Elections will not be overseen by nonpartisan officials in key states. Elections will be seen by partisan officials. People will be able to block outcomes without rationales. Um, that's not democracy. That's 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 a step towards autocracy. Do you feel a moment of truth is coming,
1: or is that an overstatement, Egypt? No, I feel a moment of truth is coming. I mean, some of these provisions look like they were translated from the Hungarian, from Orban's uh, law, electoral laws. You know, I mean, they're really bad. In other words, some of the some of the restrictions on access are bad, but these let's override nonpartisan election officials provisions are just so profoundly dangerous. Uh, you know, Ed and I actually, I sent Ed my column last night and he sent me his and said, we seem to be thinking the same thing. I do think this is a showdown. And while I think there are ways that you can recover from this, if there is a backlash in the election, I think that um, you can have an awful lot of organizing around some of these restrictions to get people voting uh, but yes when 14 states including two two of the biggest states in the country texas and Florida with huge votes in the electoral college are um, you know are doing this kind of thing yes i think it is a moment of truth and that's I guess, you know, I've forgotten who. I think it was Leon Bloom who said, I believe it because I, I, I believe it because I hope for it. Uh, I think he said in the, you know, the great French uh, uh, prime minister. Um, I just find it hard to believe that faced with this crisis, Manchin and Cinema are still going to say at the end of this month, uh, there's nothing we can do. Our hands are tied. We've got to save the filibuster. Now, maybe I'm completely wrong about that. And a lot of people think I will be wrong about that. Uh, but I agree. I think it's a moment of crisis and people have to behave that way.
2: So last last 60 seconds, comment on what EJ just said. Ryan, and then Kavita.
3: Well, it kind of reminds me of our conversation last week with Norm Ornstein, in which I think he'd referred to Texas being you know, looking more like Orban's mm-hmm. uh, state of government. Norm and I are
1: good friends. We sometimes end up thinking exactly alike. <laughs>
3: But it's a uh, I I mean, just the comment is, it's just such a frightening thought. I, I, I've started to envision, like, if Freedom House were to rank U.S. states, yes, um, where some of these states would end up ranking uh, compared to some of the worst, you know, democratic backsliding that we've seen in the last ten years. It's, it's a close. they you know, it's a, they're giving them a run for their money. Um, and obviously, the United States as a whole, given the trends within these uh, states means even worse of an outlook and in, in just in ways in which Freedom House thinks of the United States versus the world. Um, but I, I, I don't know how that will cut through because part of the conversation with Norm last
1: week is that um, everybody's hair should be on fire, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, Somebody should do just what you said if Freedom House doesn't do it, somebody's got to take it on. That's a brilliant idea.
2: That's, uh, now, slow your, slow your roll, there, guys. My column tomorrow is on precisely that. It is on. So, just give me a chance, okay? <laughs> uh, my, my, cut my, my. The column I've got for uh, what else will come out, I guess, late tomorrow. Is about how the U.S. would react to events that are occurring here if they were occurring in other countries. Yep. And, and it, and it, and Hungary is one of the examples I use. Mm. So if I don't get it right, then somebody else should do it. But let me have a shot at it tomorrow. No,
1: but I love the rankings. Do all fifty plus the DC. It's such a good idea.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. D- democracy in the US. That is a good idea. Ryan Goodman and Just Security.
1: Yeah. To uh, do go. a
2: do to do, do a democracy ranking
1: in the US. And use exactly the same criteria that Freedom yeah. House uses. Yeah. Precisely. What a good idea. Can we yeah, get, get to that? I'm-
0: I'm, I'm going to take a departure and end on something positive. Is that here. okay, David? You keep trying. So keep I, will,
1: trying.
0: <laughs> I will tell so you, I okay. My hero. <clears throat> I, today was a big day uh, because the Biden administration announced uh, kind of a more meaningful 25 million vaccines is not hardly going to be a dent in anything, but two other actions that kind of went a little bit under noticed. Number one, they're basically releasing some of the stringent agreements and operation warp speed and allowing for manufacturers, particularly the ones that are all kind of in the pipeline, to directly kind of deal with countries versus what had happened by contract where we were at the front of the line. And number two, I think it's yet an- another sign that uh, they used it, Jeff Science used the words himself, but this pandemic is in retreat. And it's incredible. But as in just to get back to some reality with our 14 states, those are precisely the 14 states where there are still pockets of people who are only, you know, one in three are vaccinated. And also states like Texas and Florida who are outlawing masks, including in schools. So, uh, but I will start with the positive. We actually have the words the pandemic is in retreat kind of out and it's not folklore and it seems real. So there's your positive note. <laughs>
2: well um i can take your positive note and turn it into a gloomy one by 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 saying that those 14 states will take the fact that it's good news and say that it justifies their terrible policies
0: yeah well they have already they've said that this is the reason we never should have had mandates or ever uh, worn masks and everyone's tearing apart Anthony Fauci's emails to try to read between the emails about what he said about masks and the Wuhan lab leak, etc. So,
2: yeah, no, no, the, but, but this is Republican scientific logic along the lines yeah. of I'm alive, so your epidemic is not real.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, but I will say, you know, it's been the first time that we've got big hospitals, Hopkins, GW, in this in the DC area with zero covid deaths in days it's, which is shocking Just didn't think that would ever happen so it's, okay. a, well, it's I'm a gonna, good I've been face.
1: waiting for the gnc to put out the bumper sticker that reads democrats kill viruses yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> don't well, you want to too yeah that's a good that's a good yeah, fundraiser
2: that's certainly something that this administration's got to its credit because what they've done in less than 6 months yeah is a monumental Mm-hmm. achievement which we should not lose sight of in all of this so okay we will end on a positive note
0: there you go, <laughs> yes. it's possible been
2: working on you the whole podcast <laughs> yeah, kavita, kavita has triumphed uh, uh, and
0: david uh, knows i'm not the positive sunshine beam of light most days so yeah you know. well
2: but you are you what you are today and i think it helps to have ej here and i hope you will come back again
1: i'd love to this was fun i really enjoyed being with you guys thank you so much
2: well, I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it too. Uh, to all of you who, you know, did enjoy it, come back next week for all the podcasts that we've got coming. Go to the dsrnetwork.com to look up uh, more uh, information on what we've got coming. Uh, different podcasts, uh, one-offs on books, our regularly scheduled podcasts. There's a lot happening, obviously. We got to respond to all of this. So thedsrnetwork.com. And if you're there and you click on membership and you want to support what we're doing, that'd be great too. Thank you, EJ. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Kavita. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.